Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We would also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. The economic headwinds stirred by the pandemic accelerated the trend of local news outlets across the U.S. folding, leaving news deserts. But not all local newsmakers are waving the white flag. In fact, some are actually launching during a tough market with innovations and new energy and focus. Among those are journalists Lauren Williams and Okoto Afori-Ata. The two longtime friends just launched a new locally driven national nonprofit black news organization called Capital B News. Their urgent mission? To serve black news consumers better. I spoke with the two entrepreneurs to mark their launch and hear more about their plans for their work ahead. So I want to start with a big question, hopefully a short answer. Why this? Why now? And why you? Lauren, you first. Well, Akoto and I saw a need for more high-quality, high-touch news for Black audiences by Black journalists out there. And why now is that mainstream media has had chance after chance to get this right, to figure out how to cover Black communities, to figure out how to build trust with Black people, to figure out how to treat Black journalists in our nation's newsrooms and just have not done it. And um, the events of 2020 from the George Floyd murder and its aftermath to um, COVID and COVID's effects on Black people around the country, um, it was really a spark for us that not only in that moment, but after Black people were going to deserve quality news and we just didn't feel like our nation's newsrooms were equipped for it. And so that's why now. And why us? Um, why not us? If not us, who? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and Akoto, what, what about your perspective? And, and how did you and Lauren decide to team up? Yeah. Um, so just like Lauren said, Black people need urgently better access to trustworthy news and stronger information systems. With all the challenges that we face, Black communities, Black Americans just need quality news now more than ever. And yeah, why us? Um, We have the complementary experience, skills, talent, vision, verve, ambition for what, what we think Black communities could, could benefit from right now. And so we didn't want to just talk about it. We wanted to just go ahead and do it. So let's give folks a taste of what you're serving up. One story that immediately caught my eye was about Ja'Cory Arthur. We can't really have a conversation about addressing housing until you address poverty. Seeing people suffering, seeing people struggle, seeing people impoverished, and knowing that without government, we will never overcome all of the disparities that we live. Who is he? And why did you choose to cover him? And what makes it capital B the way you covered him? So Ja'Cory Arthur, he is... Uh, the youngest council member in the history of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, He is an activist turned politician born from the activist 
moment in um, that region after the the killing of Breonna Taylor. And he campaigned on reparations, which is, you know, in Kentucky is a is a really amazing thing. And now he's in the city council. And, mm. um, you know, there's some some really fascinating folks like that around the country. You know, the question is, now that they're there, now that they're in office, what are they going to do and what can they do? And, um, you know, after 2020, uh, 2020 was an amazing moment for um, igniting people around the country around some of these issues. A lot of folks are sort of questioning whether it's it's going to win elections to continue to talk about these issues. And and so, you know, whether or not some of the people like Ja'Cory Arthur in Louisville are going to be able to, you know, continue the mantle of their activism while in office is a really important question to ask. And um, we want to ask those questions and not just ask if, you know, the Ja'Cory Arthurs of the world are going to, like, make white voters mad. We want to talk to the Ja'Cory Arthurs of the world and not just center white people's feelings in these conversations. Um, You both were part of a big Politico takeout with the cheerful title, Is the Media Doomed? (laughs) I had to to laugh at that. So, you know, we've been talking about the work that you're doing, but also there's the thought leadership. Both of you are thought leaders. And you said in this piece that you wrote jointly, we no longer have to rely solely on outdated business models. What do you mean by that, Lauren? I mean, uh, you know, we were just talking about June of, of 2020, right? And during that time, you know, advertisers were blocking out anything having to do with uh, the protests on their media buys. So, you know, the thing that people were, were most interested in and searching and getting the most traffic on news websites were things that, you know, were totally non-monetizable because advertisers didn't want their ads next to controversial pieces about police brutality and racism. And, you know, this isn't just true of that moment. It's, you know, always true. And a Black-led news site by and for Black people, we're going to have a lot, we're going to be talking about racism a lot. We're going to be talking about systemic racism and, you know, health disparities and and things that that matter um, in our country, our country's deep problems. And if we're basing our business entirely on advertisers who are primarily concerned about brand safety and racism feels unsafe to brands, then either we go under or we have to shift our mission to entertainment or something that is much lighter and doesn't cover um, these issues. And we didn't want to do that. And so we, while we still have a sponsorship business as part of our revenue model, our nonprofit and our primary source of revenue is philanthropic donations. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that, that, you know, despite the very cheery title of that political piece is that, you know, that we're building Capital B at a time where I do think there is some excitement and some new energy in local news. We started Capital B in a year when um, nonprofit newsrooms saw the most small dollar donations ever in history. We've also launched at a time where um, there's more philanthropic money donated to journalism. There are so many local newsrooms that are trying to really, really deliver value very directly to their audiences. And so all of the problems withstanding, there is a bit of what I'm hoping is like a new era where we can all sort of 
fund really important work for people who need it most. Yeah, and, and following up with that, and, and Okoto, you know, you can weigh in, or Lauren, I obviously worked in philanthropy for several years and helped start the Racial Equity and Journalism Fund, and longtime leader Tracy Powell, who was the lead on the Racial Equity and Journalism Fund for some time, is now starting something called the Pivot Fund. So do you think that those types of funds can play a role in kind of turning away from the underfunding of Black and BIPOC news? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Tracy's Pivot Fund has a very, very explicit um, goal of of funding Black and Brown-led news organizations that are specifically serving information needs. And I think that her vision for the kind of money that she wants to donate to that particular part of, of journalism, I think, is not just noble, but urgent and, and important. And I think... Um, you know, that is another reason to think about all of the reasons that reasons to feel a little hopeful about journalism, that there are also people working with philanthropy trying to really solve for these for these challenges in, in big and bold ways. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think things like Pivot Fund, I think Capital B, I think some of these news organizations that we mentioned in Politico, you know, I think there needs to be just this constant drumbeat in in the world of philanthropy on not just who's telling the story, but on who's receiving the information. And I, you know, I find that in funding meetings often, you know, there's a real focus on, you know, storytelling and highlighting the stories. And and objectively, that's incredibly important, right? But the thing that often comes as a surprise in these meetings is when we bring up, yes, storytelling is half of it, but the other half of it is... (laughs) Is the, is the exchange of information. And that is why Black media is so important because that is the historic importance of Black media. That's why it began. That's why it persists because it is an audience-focused medium. Like what we're trying to do is tell the stories that aren't being told, but also give the information to people it is not reaching. Um, and that is the part that is missing when you you know, give millions of dollars to a mainstream news organization to fund a bunch of Black journalists or fund uh, coverage of Black communities, who is reading it? Who is going to be the beneficiary of that information? We are still not doing anything with that money to reach Black people, to build audience trust. And that's not serving the democracy purpose. And um, that's the drumbeat that all of us, from Tracy Powell at Pivot Fund to us to, you know, a bunch of the new kids on the block in the nonprofit world, that's the drum we're beating. And why Atlanta first? I know that's kind of a silly question, especially for our contributor, Erin Haynes, you know, one of the goddesses of the 19th. She would say that's not even a question, but why Atlanta first? Yeah, so... It has an enormous Black population. There's 2 million Black people in metro Atlanta. It is a hotbed of stories. It isn't a saturated media market despite its size. And as a place where they're shifting demographics in Georgia, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation floating around. And that's one of the core parts of our mission. We want to create a trustworthy news source that combats that. And, And so it became the perfect place the perfect proof of concept for what we're trying to do. 
That's the co-founders of Capital B News, CEO Lauren Williams and Chief Content Officer Akoto Afori-Ata. And we've got more from them coming up next. Plus, for five decades, information um, establishing the identity of who actually committed the crime has been known. The amount of information here is like nothing we've ever seen in a, in a wrongful conviction case. There was a real question whether a fundamental unfairness had occurred here. The making of Exonerated, the murder of Malcolm X, and 55 years to justice. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. We've been hearing from the co-founders of the brand new Capital B News, Lauren Williams and Akoto Afori-Ata, about their national news venture with plans to build out local coverage, which has already started in Atlanta. Here's more on how they plan to sustain themselves as entrepreneurs and make an organization that lasts well into the future. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I am worried about this country. I am worried that people don't realize, in some cases, the urgency of the moment. What keeps you going? You know, Lauren first. You know, there are so many barriers to Black people achieving full, equal rights around voting access and around so many things. And so I would never presume to say that Capital B's existence could solve those things. There are structural and systemic barriers. But there are also so many people who are disconnected from information systems, who are not currently engaged in the news, who are just disconnected from trustworthy media. And what keeps me going is the incremental and important changes that we could potentially make in making connections with people who could find the news source that would change people's lives. And let's talk about, you know, personal refilling the well. You know, that is something that we talk about all the time on the show. We have people on doing really amazing, intense work uh, in any number of fields, whether it's medicine or organizing, you know, of course, being uh, a member of Congress. And you all have to refill the well. So, Akoto, how do you refill your well? What gives you joy? Many things give me joy. Um, You know, it's a different sort of thing being a co-founder. It's just it's always with you. <laughs> it's not, you know, it doesn't, there's times on Saturdays you'll be thinking through a problem and it doesn't necessarily feel like work because you just feel compelled to work toward this grand thing you're, you're helping to build. But I spend a lot of time with my husband. I like to work out and move in ways that like feel really good to me. You know, even, I think Lauren and I, even like day to day, a lot of times <laughs> we will start our meetings and maybe spend 20, 30 minutes and like, just like kiki, you know, mm-hmm. like talk about things that have happened oh, yeah. uh, with us, with our families. Um, Lauren's kids are adorable and there is always a cute, cute story coming out of that corner. But those sort of things and being sort of fortified by our friendship. Like we will like, we'll put like Kanye on the agenda. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, exactly. before we start. We have to talk about Kanye on Instagram, and then we will talk about this funder meeting. The budget, right. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, Lauren, what about you? I always feel bad when I get these questions because I just feel like I am in a place where I'm not 
I'm not doing it as I'm not filling my I'm not filling my cup. Right okay, now. Lauren. So you have you have officially failed black womanhood, <laughs> which is that is that our, our cup always has to run it over no matter how much it's drained. So you're voted off the island. Yeah, I'm I'm let's I'm add one down. more thing to your task list. That is not what this is about. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I just I've like given myself the the space to not uh, fill my cup right now, and just like even make up for it a little later. I have two. That's real. Yeah, I have two small kids, and uh, just launched Capital B, and I just you know I don't have a lot of space for myself, and I'm okay with that. I haven't had a lot of space for myself in a long time. Before we started Capital B, I also had two small kids, and I was running Vox, which um, was really hard. And this feels a little, it's hard as well, but it feels different. It feels like something that in it, in and of itself is filling my cup. And so even though I don't have a lot of time, I'm not, I don't have any like, you know, activities that I do. I barely have time to like get on the Peloton. Um, I still feel quite fulfilled and satisfied. Yeah. And Akoto, maybe we can wrap up here. What's your vision for how Capital B serves Black communities, let's say, five years from now, you know, in terms of having roots in different places, having a national footprint? Where do you want to lead from here? You know, the way that we're going to really know that our work is valuable is because we are going to be in direct relationship with the communities we're serving, right? Like each of our local newsrooms has a um, community engagement editor who will be tasked with building relationships with residents and neighborhoods that we're covering, talking to them about, you know, information gaps, just things they want to know, things that they're curious about, things that they're frustrated by. And all of that information is going to help build and sort of shape our editorial priorities and strategies, right? I hope in five years that we're starting to see some real trend toward, toward, you know, Black communities just sort of trusting, trusting news again. Now that I am looking forward to, and you're the ones to do it. Akoto and Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Farai. Thank you so much for having us. That's the co-founders of Capital B News, CEO Lauren Williams and Chief Content Officer Akoto Afori-Ata. You can follow their work at capitalbnews.org. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. What would you do if you found yourself accused of killing one of the most loved and hated leaders in American life, Malcolm X? You have to sort of compartmentalize or else you can't function. Because if you don't compartmentalize, you will panic. That's the voice of Muhammad Aziz. In 1966, both Aziz and the now deceased Khalil Islam were falsely convicted of the assassination of civil rights champion Malik El-Shabazz, or Malcolm X. Both men spent decades in prison for first-degree murder, and last November, both were exonerated of those charges by Manhattan's district attorney's office. In a new powerful special streaming on Hulu by ABC News, Aziz shares his story for the first time publicly since the courts cleared his name. It is called Soul of a Nation Presents Exonerated, the murder of Malcolm X and 55 years to justice. The special is currently streamable on Hulu. And joining me now to talk about the show Exonerated is one of its producers, ABC News senior editorial producer Stephanie Wash. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you for having me on. 
I have to say, I watched this doc with my mom and, uh, you know, my mom just turned 80. I'm 52. And, you know, for, for me, it's so much that fills in the blanks as someone who's read, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X and certainly knew about the convictions, but didn't really know whether they were meant to be. And then I saw the news story about the exonerations. And here you come, you and your team with this documentary. What did you attempt to do more broadly and succeed in doing in this special? And give us a sense of, you know, kind of what your aims were and and if you think you met them. So Soul of a Nation, for those who don't know, is a docuseries that ABC launched last year in 2021. And it started out as a six-part series that was uh, meant to focus on the Black experience in America. And it was meant to be a docuseries for diverse audiences. And so this special, Exonerated, was something that we launched during Black History Month. Um, and we really wanted to do what we do in most of our Soul of a Nations, which is present viewers with this unique window into the authentic realities of Black life. And we want to dive deeper. And so it's interesting that you said that, you know, the, the story of Malcolm X's assassination was one that you didn't know fully because I think we both had the same experience. I'm 35 years old and Malcolm X is one of the most influential figures in U.S. history. And many people, including myself, had never heard the details and the facts of his assassination. My first time learning about it was uh, in the news, hearing that two men were wrongfully convicted and, and they were about to be exonerated. Um, so Soul of a Nation presents Exonerated, the Murder of Malcolm X and 55 Years to Justice, which is the full title. Uh, we were hoping to really retrace Malcolm X's shocking assassination for those who didn't know the story in full. Um, we were hoping through Muhammad's first TV interview since exoneration, be able to tell how something like this can change a man, how something like this can change the entire fabric of a family, as it did in his case, as it did in the case of the late exoneree Khalil Islam. And we can't forget about what it did to the family of Malcolm X. Yeah, I have to say that Muhammad Aziz's interview is really something that just holds space. Let's listen to a little bit of Aziz and interviewer Byron Pitts. Were you scared? No. No? No. Did I look scared? You look at the pictures. Did I look scared? No, sir. I wasn't scared. And somehow when he says that, you, at least for me, I completely believed him. And when most people say that they're not scared, they really are. But I completely believed him. You did show images of, of some prison cells. But I just thought, what would it be like to go from your young manhood into your 80s, you know, in prison? And just I sort of started imagining the kind of spaces that he inhabited while still remaining very much a man of dignity and faith and self-assurance. And in fact, he spoke about that act of being in prison and what it was like there. The first 19 months you were incarcerated, you spent it... In, in uh, what you can call solitary or, you know, in what they call in the box. But people knew why you were there, that you were one of the men yeah. convicted of killing Malcolm. Were there threats because of that? To me? No. Yes, sir. No. The people know I didn't do it. Nobody ever thought I did it. 
So who was he before he uh, was incarcerated for the assassination of Malcolm X? So Muhammad Aziz was a Navy veteran. Um, He was someone who had a family. He had children. Uh, When he was accused and convicted of this crime, he was a lieutenant within the Nation of Islam at the time. And it was interesting because I was in the room during this interview and hearing him say about that iconic photo of him being arrested, did I look scared? Uh, We all believed it in the room too because Muhammad is someone who wholly leaned on his faith when this horrific thing was happening to him. He's someone to this day that believes God was on his side through it all, and that's what kept him. And, you know, thinking back on who he was at the time, just think of the courage and the poise that it takes to be a man of that young age. You're a husband and a father. The police are dragging you out of your home for something you know you didn't do and you don't know if you're coming back. Um, And this is an American citizen that has the same rights as anybody else. Like I said, he was a Navy veteran. He served this country. His life is just snatched up from under him. And he's telling everyone, I didn't do this. And the sole admitted assassin is even saying throughout the years, Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam are innocent. But as Muhammad tells Byron Pitts in this interview, no one was listening. Exonerated features just a host of subjects. You really got some incredible participants. And you have family members, investigators, lawyers. And one voice is independent historian Abdur Rahman Muhammad. And his detective work into the old FBI documentation is what reignited interest in the case. Over time, it, it became something of a crusade for justice not just a cold scholarly matter. And you also present a cadre of legal voices in and around the exoneration, and and here's some of what they had to say about the case. For five decades, information um, establishing the identity of who actually committed the crime has been known. The amount of information here is like nothing we've ever seen in in a wrongful conviction case. There was a real question whether a fundamental unfairness had occurred here. And so, Stephanie, as a journalist, how did you decide who to put in and how to feature them and how to make it make sense to, you know, probably most of your viewers are not contemporaneous with having witnessed uh, the, the media around the assassination of Malcolm X. So many years have passed, more than half a century. So how did you choose who needed to speak? Well, Abdur Rahman Muhammad is such a dynamic character. We knew that he would lend a voice that was much needed. Just as a citizen scholar, someone who we learned about from the Netflix documentary, someone who was so committed to digging and uncovering the truth behind Malcolm X's assassination for years. Uh, And when we sat down with the Netflix directors behind the special, they told us that nobody knew more about Malcolm X's murder than Abdul Rahman Muhammad. So they were able to follow him in the Netflix documentary as he built on his research and investigative work. So we knew that he was a voice that uh, we needed in the special to kind of document for us Malcolm X's life, his assassination, and what he had uncovered since then. And we came across Deb Francois and David Shane as the civil rights attorneys for the estate of Khalil Islam and Muhammad Aziz, 
basically when everyone else was learning about them in the news, when there was this news that the then Manhattan DA Cy Vance was looking into exonerating these two men. So it was kind of a given that we needed to sit down with the civil rights attorneys that were behind this rewriting of history. And were there times where you were like, I just don't know about X, Y, or Z, because there are still mysteries left, you know, um, behind who actually assassinated Malcolm X, not just who pulled the trigger, but who was behind who pulled the trigger? Well, we had a lot of questions. Um, So something that we did do for this documentary is we tried to locate and contact some of the names that the admitted assassin of Malcolm X gave in an affidavit. Uh, He claimed that these were the four men that were involved in the assassination with him. We tried to locate them. We believe that all four of them are dead. um, And so we were unable to, to locate them. But we also had questions about what the FBI knew. We tried to interview folks from the FBI. We tried to interview former detectives from NYPD, a former DA. We had questions that were unanswered still after the Netflix documentary. But, you know, a lot of us are still left with so many questions. And we spoke to Ilyasa Shabazz, Malcolm X's daughter. And in in our interview, you know, she says that she would like a federal inquiry into what happened to her father and who was responsible. She wants to know the truth. Um, So there are just so many unanswered questions, especially for the the family of Malcolm X. Yeah. And and as we wrap up, why is it important for the nation to know this history? That's a great question. Um, There are so many things right now in 2022 that are being looked at again. There are monuments coming down, there are statues coming down, there are things being removed from history books. We are in a moment of complete reckoning in this country. So it's not only important to know history when it comes to race and and culture, it's important just to know uh, American history as a whole. But this story in particular, um, having covered it so deeply and understanding the devastating impact it has had on three families. I think it is so important for us to lend our ears and to lend our hearts to this story because as Muhammad Aziz told told Byron Pitts in the interview, no one was listening to him, absolutely Mm -hmm. no one. And I think it's so important for us to know our history and to listen to people like Muhammad Aziz who just want their story to be told. Well, Stephanie, I was completely captured by this. And I thank you for your journalism here and ongoing. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's ABC News senior editorial producer on Soul of a Nation, Stephanie Wash. And you can stream Exonerated, the murder of Malcolm X in 55 years to justice right now on Hulu. Coming up next, a special edition of Sippin' the Political Tea, catching up with Washington Post opinion columnist and our body politic contributor Karen Atia about Joe Rogan, Whoopi Goldberg, the legacy of Jamal Khashoggi, and more. When it comes to Joe Rogan's deal with Spotify, this is not free speech. At this point, this is a hundred million dollars speech. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Every week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. 
Now, before we jump in, I want to check in with you about a topic we are tackling on next week's show. That is inflation and how it's hitting our wallets. Please tell us what's on your mind. And the question is, with rising prices, what are the pressure points for you right now? What costs are hitting you hardest? Food, gas, rent, childcare, medical bills, something else entirely. Are you doing anything in particular in this moment to get by? For me, it's really an awareness of my privilege. I love fresh fruits and vegetables. I have a sense of gratitude I can pay for them because they are not cheap right now. And as a kid, my family saved money by growing them ourselves. My mom was a really great urban farmer, and we grew and we canned and we froze. So I am actually grateful that um, although I can see inflation adding to the cost of getting fresh produce, that I can buy it. We want you to answer that question. Call us at 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Again, the question is, with rising prices, what are the pressure points for you right now and what are you doing? You can also respond to us on Instagram or Twitter at OurBodyPolitik or go on OurBodyPolitik.com and scroll down to where it says, we want to hear from you. Next week, we'll have Washington Post columnist and personal finance expert Michelle Singletary on to answer your money questions. Now back to the tea. And is it ever hot this week? Joining me for a special edition of Sippin' the Political Tea is Our Body Politic contributor Karen Atiyah, opinions columnist at The Washington Post. She has been producing some of the most important cultural and political criticism today. Deeply researched and brilliantly written. Welcome, Karen. Hey, Farai. Good to be here. Oh, it is so good to have you. So we would love to start with your Washington Post column on Joe Rogan. You wrote, among other things, in America, the basic humanity and safety of those who are not white men is always up for open debate. It is this freedom that allows figures such as Rogan to use slurs in the aim of honest conversation and have guests who peddle racist pseudoscience, such as the ridiculous claim that black people are genetically predisposed to violence. And Rogan did, in fact, have the alt-right activist Chuck C. Johnson on his show in 2015 saying just that. There's this whole debate about the MAOA gene, which is like this gene that um, black America, you know, black, uh, you know, Africans have. It's like a proclivity to violence that they have. But basically, like what it is, is it's, you know, if we if you think about like, you know, kind of white European Asian ancestors as we kind of moved out of Africa, like aggression and violence was kind of less necessary because we were like farmers and stuff. Because we all know that there's no farmers in Africa, that everyone rides a lion and just goes and, you know, hunts down the antelope or crawls along, actually eating the little tiny things that lions leave behind. Actually, you know what? Let me just say, Karen, before I even go to you, one of the many fun facts that people don't know is that low country cuisine, I mean, some people do know, in, especially in our audience, low country cuisine came out of West Africans importing rice techniques to the United States. And as you know, and I know, there would not be American food without black people who knew how to farm before we even came to America. So rant off. That episode has now been deleted by Spotify, and it's just one of many now deleted episodes. Um, What are we supposed to make of this, Queen? You know, Joe Rogan. I mean, his his super loyal fans and, and defenders will say, Look, he's he's just he's willing to to listen to all sides. He's willing to say the things that you know people are afraid to say. 
we, what about free speech, Karen? Don't you care about free speech? And I'm like, when it comes to Joe Rogan's deal with Spotify, this is not free speech. At this point, this is a hundred million dollars speech. This is what it's a Spotify, hustle. It's a it's a hustle, and I think you know, for me, um, it's the fact that we are so in this country. Not we, but white establishments in particular are so casual about inviting this debates in the in the spirit of progress and in the spirit of conversation these debates about black people's humanities trans people's humanity women's humanity our safety our our very basic right to to be able to to live <laughs> dignified and they put it up as like oh we're just we're just having a conversation and to me um the the Joe Rogan situation you know, honestly, honestly, if I'm going to be like absolutely real about it, as someone who's in the quote unquote like mainstream media, I saw a little bit of almost like condescension in the sense that like the people, you know, people think the elites tend to think that who listen to the Joe Rogan show mm-hmm. are like these bros who are like, you know, a little bit like beneath them and like, like, oh, of course they would listen to like that lowbrow stuff. But I, you and I remember that this ethos of like, well, we want to just hear all sides is something that also happened in the mainstream media in response to Trump. They're like, absolutely right. Like, maybe it's not a bad idea to have Jason Kessler on NPR to hear him rank the races, (laughs) which he did um, ahead of the Unite the Right rally. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, I I placed the Joe Rogan Spotify situation as like the latest like information, no, the latest incident of large, powerful institutions, white institutions, Spotify is based in, in Sweden, on not being afraid to platform the dehumanization of marginalized groups and not only not being afraid, but making a lot of money from it. He's in the tradition of Rush Limbaugh, of Tucker Carlson, of all these right wing white male hosts that um, have profited off of this, have have built empires from particularly white male audiences enjoying this sort of stuff. So this is this is a deep societal cultural almost titillation with playing around with, uh, you know, dehumanizing us. So the question is um, how to, how to rein this in. Yeah. How do you choose what you write? You know, you, you have really developed such an incredible voice, you know, after years as an editor moving into being a columnist, how do you choose? Gosh, I I like to say in some ways, you know, uh, when the spirit moves me, I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, I think, um, I think particularly in the last couple of weeks with these issues, I try to choose what's, I think, not really being said or to try to take a different a different angle. And I mean, I just think that these are these are political moments in many ways, but these are, you know, very much cultural moments. And I, you know, especially being at The Post, which is so known for kind of, you know, politicians and kind of like the horse race, left versus right sort of thing. I believe that politics follows culture. Yeah. Um, politicians are followers, and often the the leaders in our society are, are the sort of ones who are pushing um, the culture forward and shifting consciousness. And And I think for me, I'm 
at heart still like an internationalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to draw patterns. So with the Whoopi Goldberg uh, whole situation, it was a learning opportunity. It was a teachable moment. And I think I just saw that. I was like, let's let's try to make this into a bit of a teachable moment about about race and its trajectory through the centuries. Yeah. So let's jump right in there. You know, Whoopi Goldberg, um, you know, was suspended from the view uh, for saying that the Holocaust isn't about race. She apologized uh, later that day and, and said this on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. As a Black person, I think of race as being something that I can see. So I see you and I know what race you are. And I felt that that it was really more about man's inhumanity to man and how horrible people can be to people. And we're seeing it manifest itself these days. But people were very angry and they said, no, no, we are a race. And I, I, I understand. I understand. And you wrote that instead of taking the opportunity to educate Goldberg and viewers, ABC silenced a black woman. What kinds of conversations do media outlets need to have constructively? And what happened here, you know, in this kind of crash of of uh, Whoopi, who is a titan, and the rest of the view and the audience? Yeah. To, to actually back up, like, we have to keep in mind that that whole segment was actually about this wave of book banning that's happening across the country, right? So like the whole context and the conversation was about, frankly, sort of white supremacy. And um, they were, it was a conversation about a book uh, called Mouse that was about the Holocaust and, and was banned. So to put all that in context and her sort of not in public stumbling and not understanding, right, that like the idea of, Jewish people as a race, as in other peoples, as was part and parcel of um, not only Germany, but but frankly, Europe's construction of superior races, of right. white supremacy. And you could see her her fellow co-host trying to reel her back in, trying to be like, trying to help her, give her an out to to dig out and and to tell the, tell her that this was about white supremacy. There was Absolutely. also Roma peoples, also you know other other groups that were deemed as inferior peoples um, by the Germans at the time. And, you know, frankly, um, there were a lot of people, even after I wrote the piece, a lot of people who were like, who didn't understand, they were like, Whoopi's right. Like, what is, what is she talking about? Mm. And and even if you look back to, to Black scholars, um, I've been reading, you know, uh, W.B. Du Bois, like, who at the time were saying, were looking at it, it's like, wow, Europeans turned against other Europeans. Mm. Um, and I think what's really difficult to, to conceive is that um, the idea of race just being about skin color, in the European context, it wasn't just about your skin color. It's about your religion. It's about your ethnicity. It was an unfortunate moment because it actually disrupted, Whoopi Stumble disrupted the very necessary conversation that is so necessary for this time right now. Absolutely. You are listening to Sippin' the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I am Farai Chidea. And this week we are talking about all of the minds in the field, race, gender, and the power of the media with The Washington Post's Karen Atia. If you are just tuning in, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Just find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, I've got a couple more things I want to touch on with you. One is that you took on educating the beehive 
That is Beyonce's land of stands. And so Beyonce and Jay-Z were featured in a Tiffany & Co. ad with the big yellow Tiffany diamond discovered in South Africa. Discovered. Uh, in South Africa, in, you know, air quotes, in 1877. And some people celebrated the fact that she was the first black woman to wear the necklace. But you pointed out that African lives were lost and communities destroyed in the mining of diamonds. So um, what happened when you tried to point this out? Oh, God. <laughs> OK, so <laughs> in my time at, at the Post and being a journalist, like I've gone up against like governments that jail writers and uh, threats, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, name your kind of authoritarian country. When I <laughs> when I published the uh, Beyonce piece, I um, I had friends like texting me. They're like, "Are you okay? Do you need anything? <laughs> Are like, yo, I'm here for you if you need Karen anything." Karen Atia from an undisclosed location. <laughs> I know because we've seen the stories. Oh gosh, we all remember when um, Beyonce dropped that you know uh, Becky with the good hair mm-hmm. lyric about Jay Z cheating, and and the her high went wild with speculation, and we're sending like death threats to you know these poor targets and stuff and so um you know in our kind of internet stand culture uh her her fans her fans can be vicious um and to an extent they were but honestly in many ways it wasn't even about Beyonce and here's kind of a, a little bit of a theme in my work in in many ways like I'm not always so concerned with individual's behavior, although, you know, these are things we should look to, particularly public figures. Um, It matters what they do and what they say. But what I resented the most was Tiffany's using Beyonce um, and Jay-Z and this diamond of Black excellence that we should celebrate, that this was a historic thing that we should aspire Mm -hmm. to wear a colonial diamond. Mm -hmm. The heck? Absolutely not. It was insulting. Same with this idea. I'd I'd certainly like to, you know, just have a whole bunch of random South Africans die mining so that I could look cute. And not just look cute, but like, it's an honor. No, F that. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, that was a joke, folks. I have many relatives, including my brother, in South Africa, and I respect human life all over the world. Just putting that in there in case you can't get what I was saying. Right. So... Yeah, the the fans came for me, but in the in the great words of Nene Leakes, I said what I said. <laughs> you can't argue. You can't argue with history. You can't honestly argue that these ideals of 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 excellence, of consumption, of wearing diamonds are somehow racial progress. Nah, get out of here. That's that right. Basically, <laughs> that was basically what you're going that, after. That'll be our pull quote for this episode. Nah, get out of here. Karen nah, Atia. <laughs> so, so the, you know, I, I do want to ask you about this incredibly important work that you've been doing in addition to your 12 other jobs, which is writing Say Your Word, Then Leave, The Assassination of Jamal Khashoggi and the Power of Truth. It comes out this summer. You were his editor. Um, what should we anticipate from this book? Oh, gosh. Um, I think this book is for the people who 
saw this story, which dominated the headlines for for a solid, you know, several months and years. People know his name and know him as a symbol of so many things of of Middle Eastern repression, of Trump's perhaps uh, indifference to to life um, and of the U.S. Saudi relationship. But I hope with this book, you know, honestly, him and I, we were just two people trying to do good work for the post, trying to good, do good work for, for our communities in many ways, respectively. And what happens when literally you get caught up in in the storm and the consequences for speaking out, the consequences for uh, speaking the truth. I think there are times when we forget how much many of us risk. So yeah, I'd, I'd hope, you know, it's just my humble, I think, contribution to how I saw things Mostly as just kind of, you know, two people trying to do good work and then having our lives shattered for a while and trying to trying to make something right out of it all. Uh, so, yeah, I'm excited to put it out there. <laughs> yeah, and we will be excited to talk to you about it. Um, you, There's so much that we could continue to talk about, but I want to end here because it is an important place to end with the memory of Jamal Khashoggi and the work you have coming out. Karen, so glad to have you give us this incredible tour de force interview. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Fry, for, for your the space you give me and just like the profound questions. I, I always love being on with you. So thank you. And that was Our Body Politic contributor Karen Atia, cultural critic, author, and opinions columnist at The Washington Post. Her book, Say Your Word, Then Leave, The Assassination of Jamal Khashoggi and the Power of Truth, comes out this summer. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Jonathan Blakely is co-executive producer. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly is our producer. Our associate producer is Natina Beam. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced by Lauren Schild and engineered by Rock Lee and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. 